Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. This is the last interview in the Kenyan series for now. This story is an emotional one for me. So Dr. Shivani Bala is a fourth generation Kenyan Indian and a conservationist biologist. When I learned about Shivani, I was ecstatic because there are hardly any Kenyan Indian environmentalists. And I don't know how to express the feeling of meeting another Kenyan Indian woman who is passionate about the environment. Shivani's story is awe-inspiring. Against all odds, she packed up the very few belongings she had in 2007 and set up camp in Samburu in northern Kenya to protect the lions and their habitat, thus founding Iwaso Lions. It's that inner fire that I can relate to and that I've felt in each one of our guests where they just feel something in their bones and they just do it and it may seem like craziness to the outsider. I have great respect for her work. She believes that the key to lion conservation is working in partnership with communities. And this is the opposite of the old colonial conservationist model that we have implemented for decades where nature and people are kept separate, thus creating more problems than balance. We talk about how she works together with her local team and with the Samburu communities to reduce livestock loss to carnivores and monitor the existing lion population within the Samburu Isiolo landscape in northern Kenya. I absolutely admire that Shivani puts the local communities first because she realizes that at the end of the day, empowering local communities to take over the project will only ensure ownership and longevity of their efforts. And of course, we talk about what it means to be a Kenyan Indian woman environmentalist. So listen on. So thanks again, Shivani, for joining us. You have a really unique conservation story. And I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about how your journey began to save lions. Sure. Thanks, Sapna. I think my journey really began when I was a kid, when I just became very obsessed with wildlife. And I would go on safari with my parents and just kept saying to them that I want to drive around and look for wildlife when I grow up. At one point, I wanted to be a ranger. And then at another point, I wanted to be a vet, but then realized I'm too soft and would cry every time I saw a sick animal. So it was in university that I realized I could actually pursue this as a degree, which is when I pursued environmental science first and then wildlife conservation. And that brought me to Samburu. So I moved here in 2002. And I've always loved the big cats. Since I was a kid, my passion has always been the cats, especially cheetahs. And so when I moved to Samburu, the first thing I wanted to do was look for cheetahs for my master's uh, research project, but didn't find any. Instead, I was finding lions every day. And I became really interested in them because I wasn't seeing large prides of lions that I used to see as a child growing up in Kenya. Instead, I was seeing solitary lions or lions in pairs. And often I would see lions in one day and then the next day they'd be gone and I had no idea where they were going. So it really did spark my interest in lions. And that really was the beginning of the conservation project that I started in 2007 called Iwaso Lions to really try and understand more about 
the lion population in northern Kenya. Great. Thanks for that. And so how did you find yourself in Samburu? And tell us a little bit about what makes Samburu unique in the African or rather the Kenyan geography. So what brought me to Samburu, I used to work for a tourist organization, tourist camp that is based here in Samburu. And the owner of the camp asked me, it was exactly about this time in 2002, she said, do you want to go and spend Christmas there? Do you want to go help out for a weekend? Because I really need some help at the camp. And so I agreed and never left. I went there for a weekend and never left. I spent a year at this camp. It's called Elephant Watch Camp, which was a beautiful place to really, to just get to learn Samburu from. And then from there, left the camp to work for the Elephant Research Organization for many years. But at the same time, my mind just kept wanting to do more on the big cats again. I wanted to really focus on where my passion lied, and that was the cats. So yeah, I stayed with the elephant organization, Save the Elephants and the Tourist Camp for many years, and then left to start up Iwas Alliance. And I think what makes Samburu so unique in the Kenyan context is it's one of the few places in Kenya where you have wildlife people living alongside one another. So in most of the areas we work in, it's people in villages with all their livestock and wildlife trying to coexist in this landscape. And it's so unique and it's truly spectacular. Samburu, I mean, of course, I'm very biased. I've lived here for 17 years, but Samburu is truly spectacular. You have mountains and the most amazing river, the Iwasa Nura River, which is where we get our name from. And it's a semi-arid desert, so it's a very dry landscape. And it's so common to often see a Samburu warrior walking through the bush with his spear and his herd of cows. And then in the background, just behind him, 20 huge elephants or a herd of giraffes. And I think that's what makes Samburu so, so special is you have this incredible landscape where people are sharing the same land with wildlife. Yeah, that's fascinating because growing up in Kenya, we were just more familiar with designated conservation areas where people were not allowed or communities, human communities were not allowed to access these conservation areas because they were protected. But Samburu is unique, as you mentioned, in that sense. And so your challenge for conservation is a little bit more dynamic than the more traditional approach to conservation, which is separating people from nature. It is. And I think just to add a little bit there, I think the reason this is so unique and so special is because 70% of Kenya's wildlife actually are not in protected areas. They don't live in parks. They all live outside. And although Samburu has its own protected areas, national reserves, which are absolutely spectacular as well, often these protected areas are too small. So we do have Samburu, Buffalo Springs, Shaba National Reserves, but they're so small for wildlife that you have to work outside. You've got to try and understand this landscape outside because wildlife don't know boundaries. So they're moving in and out constantly, which is why understanding what's happening outside and seeing whether coexistence is possible is really the key to conservation. I completely agree. As I was doing a little bit more research on conservation areas in Kenya, looking at the map of the designated national parks versus the experience of being in one, when I've been physically in a national park in Kenya, it feels like a really vast land that never ends. But when you look at it on the maps, it's just these very small pockets that are surrounded with encroaching 
urban development. And growing up in Kenya, as we know, Nairobi National Park is just at the edge of the city of Nairobi. And those type of wildlife conflicts have been sort of something that we've been familiar with from an early age. But I'm more curious to know, what is your approach to managing human-wildlife conflict with Iwaso lions? I think our approach from the beginning has always been about putting everything in the hands of the local people who are living here with wildlife, the community who are facing the conflict, the communities who live here with the animals that cause the conflict. And I think by giving them ownership, by building them up to have more ownership over the wildlife and the land and everything here is what has made a difference to addressing some of these human-lion conflict issues. So, for example, if we have lions that kill a camel or a cow, understandably the community are really angry and upset when that happens because their livelihood depends on their livestock. So when a lion comes in and kills your one cow or your one camel, there's so much anger and resentment, and often that is when lions are shot or speared or poisoned in retaliation. And so our approach to dealing with this has been trying to see what happened in the first place. How can we stop more conflict from happening? How can we convince that person who's lost his livestock that it's going to be far more detrimental to this area if another lion is killed, considering how few lions are left in this area? And it's not me that goes along to these communities saying, I don't think you should kill lions and you should leave lions alone. It is my team of Samburu warriors who do that. So they themselves can really understand what it's like to lose livestock to carnivores. They can empathize with the person who's lost his cow or camel, and they are able to really convince them why it's important not to retaliate. So it's far more effective when it comes from a Samburu person who really believes in this and understands this to another Samburu person who is facing that livestock loss. And I think that is what's made our human line conflict work more effective, mainly because the whole Iwaso Lions team are from this region. They have full ownership over the project. They make the decisions. They're incredible leaders. And so because of that, that's what really allows us to deal and address human line conflict. Yeah, I think the Warrior Project is very unique from my perspective. I haven't seen anything to that extent in Kenya. And what I'd like to learn a little bit more about is how did the Warrior Project come about and how did you build a relationship with that community so that you were now collaborating with these warriors who have traditionally hunted lions? but now they're the biggest advocate and protector of the lion population in Samburu. So I think the first great thing that happened was I had a very small, young Samburu team. So initially I was alone driving around trying to look for lions. And of course I was making absolutely no progress until an elder, a very wise elder came to me and he said, Shivani, you'll never find anything. You're not from Samburu. You don't have the eyes of a Samburu. You need a Samburu team. And so he selected three amazing people for me, Janaria, Jeremiah, and Francis, who are still with me today. And Janaria was only 19 years of age when I first met him. He was very shy, very quiet, and a young warrior himself. He really understood what it was like to be in the bush and where the lions were. So initially, he didn't even quite accept lion conservation because he himself had lost camels or cows to lions, and he actually hated lions. But over time, he really changed, and he's become the most amazing conservation ambassador now. And it didn't take long. All it took was 
him seeing lions in their natural habitat, him seeing lions in their normal behavior, him seeing lions in places where he thought there were lots, but then he only saw one or two and he realized very few were left. So it was actually Generia who came up with the concept of the warrior program. And he said, this was back in 2010, he said, if we want to stop the killing of lions, if we want to prevent retaliatory killing, we've got to engage the rest of my warriors. We've got to bring them on board and we've got to convince them the way you've convinced me, he said to me, I need to convince them. And he did that. He started with a team of five warriors and now he has 21 warriors. And he's managed to convince them to stop retaliation, to work with other warriors in protecting livestock better. And generally, they're all now amazing conservationists as a result of Generia, who is very much their leader and their inspiration. It was amazing to have Generia join our team. Well, he was the first person who really joined back in early 2008. And since then, we've never really looked back. He's a true leader. I had an opportunity to watch National Geographic video that was made on Generia and watching that video just brought happy tears oh. <laughs> to me because his story is just amazing. <laughs> and I feel like I'm going to cry right now, but... <laughs> yeah, no, he's amazing. It's yeah. really great to see that. He is. And so just to see that kind of empowerment and just commitment to protecting the lion population that kind of passion I haven't seen in a really long time. And I think it gives people like myself hope that communities are really taking ownership of being stewards of their natural environment. And it's just like a great success study that I think a lot of us in conservation should try and replicate somehow. So I think you're kind of genius in, in what you've created with your team at Iwaso Lions. It's pretty humbling. I forgot to ask you one critical question, which is, what do you love about the lions in Samburu? What intrigues you about them? I think what intrigues me the most about them is how different they are. Again, they're not in these large prides that I've grown up seeing. They're solitary. They're raising their cubs themselves. They never come out during the day. They only hunt at night. Their behavior is so amazing. And I think every day I see lions, I keep feeling like I still have something more to learn from them. And I keep feeling it's still my first time I'm ever seeing them. They just are real survivors. And I often say this, that if you bring a Maasai Mara lion to Samburu, it wouldn't survive a day. And you take a Samburu lion to the Mara and it would have a feast. Because I really do feel we have some of the strongest, toughest lions that exist because they have figured out a way of survival against all the odds in places where there's no food. There's so many people. There's so much unsafety. The lions have just figured out a way of survival. And I think every time I see that and I learn about it, I'm just completely fascinated by them. We definitely have some real survivors here. Yeah. I had no idea about the difference between the Samburu lions and the lions in the Maasai Mara or Southern Kenya, because Southern Kenyan lions were all that we saw in the, and that's all that we think there is. So it's really interesting to learn about the differences in the behavior of these lions. So one of the things that you mentioned in your journey to exploring your passion for the big cat family is that your family played a role in helping you kind of get exposed to the natural beauty of Kenya. And I'd like to learn a little bit more about 
what role did your family play in your choice to becoming a wildlife conservationist? I think for so long growing up as a kid, I spent so much time out in the bush and going to parks and reserves in Kenya. My dad would frequently pack us all up in his little car and take us on safari. And he loved it. I mean, he just loved driving in the bush. And my dad grew up as a motorsport driver. So for him, being out in the bush was so important. And so I think my sister and I grew up just being out there so much. And when I did start saying I want to pursue conservation or I was interested in it, I never faced any resistance ever. I mean, I think at some point my parents were a little bit horrified when I said I wanted to be a ranger. But after, I mean, even I realized I don't think I could have run around chasing poachers with guns. I didn't think I had that in me. So after they, they were a little bit worried then, but then after that, they said, you know, I never faced any resistance. They said, go for it and see how it goes. I don't think they really, I mean, I don't think I knew either that I would be doing this, running a big organization 10, 15 years down the line. I don't think they knew it. I don't think I knew it. But they were so supportive every step of the way, even setting up our original camp. It was my mom and dad that gave me all the initial stuff. My mom's secretary chair that she had sitting in the store, her table, which we used as our kitchen, her old cutlery that we used for years in our old kitchen. My dad gave us all the spare parts from all his service vehicles and things like that. So my parents supported me right from the beginning just by giving me, because I didn't have that much money. I actually had almost nothing. And so they kept giving me stuff just to get going in the camp and supporting me for a long time because when Iwasa Lions was young, I had no money for anything. I literally barely had money just to pay salaries for the three guys, get some food and fuel the car. So my parents were very supportive throughout that whole process. My sister, especially every time I'd visit the UK, my sister and her husband, Jeremy, were always there to greet me, always there to look after me when I was in university, when I was just struggling to sort of make ends meet. So really my family from my parents, my sister, my sister's husband, Jeremy, were supportive from me from day one and so proud, I think. I think they were quite surprised that I was doing something so different. And so then it became something to be very proud about. And they kept telling everyone that their daughter was out in the middle of nowhere, basically living with lions, I think. And so I was quite lucky. I mean, really, literally from day one, I faced no resistance, just a lot of support. And they were very, very proud of what I was doing. Yeah, that's such a heartwarming story. And some of that resonates with me because when I decided that I wanted to be an environmentalist, I wasn't sure exactly what that would look like besides what we would see in mainstream media, which was, you know, Greenpeace people hugging trees or going into the ocean and trying to protect whales. So I think that was sort of like the perception of what most people thought were environmentalists when at least in my community when I was growing up in Nairobi. But my parents were very supportive throughout and educated themselves about the profession, which was, I think, quite rare for Indian parents. Yeah, definitely. So in that same vein, you know, there aren't very many Kenyan Indians in conservation and it's not a career that is encouraged very often by our community. Why do you think that is and how can we change it? It's definitely true that there's very few Kenyan Indians in conservation. I think there's this belief that 
not just Kenyan Indians, but no Kenyan should be doing conservation. It's very much something for a foreigner to do. Someone from outside of Kenya needs to come and do conservation for us. So we've got to basically really resist that as a start, to really resist this perception that conservation is not for Kenyans to do, because it's the exact opposite. This is our country. This is our wildlife. We should be doing this. And then on the Kenyan Indian side, I think people are stuck in their old ways. People are stuck with the traditional ways, which is which Indian girl is supposed to go living out in the bush where things are not safe or in their opinion is not safe for me. I think Nairobi is far more unsafe than where I am. And so I think there's just these misconceptions that no Indian person should be doing this. They should be doing something far more traditional, like becoming an accountant or a dentist or just a housewife and raising, having lots of babies and raising them. And I think we've got to change this. I think that's a bunch of nonsense. And I think we've got to really resist these perceptions and get people to think differently and change the way they think and push back. And for me, I mean, generally, whatever communities I've met in Nairobi are very supportive of what I do, especially my own family and my extended family, my cousins, my aunt, they're all extremely proud of this. But if you hear further on, you know, their friends or some distant relatives, they all think this is crazy. And they all say, your daughter or your this, your niece should be doing something far more normal. Who says what is normal? Who says this is not normal? Like who actually labeled conservation is not normal for Kenyan Indians? And I think we've got to make it normal. I think the few Kenyan Indian conservationists that are around need to make this normal, need to go against the traditions, need to actually say, this is a very normal profession for someone to do, a Kenyan Indian to do. It's a proper career. It's a proper job. And if we don't do it, who's going to do it for us? We need to get on with it. And I think the Kenyan Indian community also have a massive opportunity to not just be involved in conservation and do this kind of stuff, but also to fund it. There's so much wealth within the Kenyan Indian community, especially in Nairobi. But I see some of it from some amazing people going out to conservation, but I don't see a lot of it. And I think that has to change, that Kenyan Indians need to be able to pay it forward and give money back into conservation. We are from here. This is our country. This is our wildlife. And we've got to invest in it. So I don't expect every Kenyan Indian to give up their lives in Nairobi and move 12 hours away and build a camp on top of a hill the way I have. But I do expect them to support it, whether it's financially or something else they can do. That has to happen. And I feel we have a long, long way to go. And I do hope that one day the Kenyan Indian community will do more for conservation. And as I said, there are some amazing individuals out there doing some, but there's so much more that needs to be done. I mean, just to give you an example, I was trying to raise funding for a bus a few years ago. And this bus was a safari bus for children to go on safari and see wildlife. Samburu children have never seen wildlife in a positive way. So I was trying to raise some money for a bus and trying to get discounts and trying to get someone to fund it. It took me two and a half years and people in Nairobi were just not interested. And I thought, why are you not getting this? And in the end, I had to get the money from overseas to pay for that bus. And there's something so fundamentally wrong about that. These are Kenya's children. This is a Kenyan bus. This is Kenya's wildlife. Why did we not get that funding in Kenya? But after two and a half years of banging on doors and emailing people, I had to give up at some point and look for the money overseas. 
So there's a lot that needs to be done. There's so much education, so much awareness that we need to do with the Kenyan Indian community. And we've really got to push back and not be discouraged because there were times where I was like, I'm about to give up with the Kenyan Asians because I don't know how to get funding or support. But I think there's got to be a way. And I think if we all come together, the few Kenyan Indians involved in conservation actually get together, we might have a chance. And I think we might have a chance to really push this agenda forward. Well, amen to that. I completely agree. I feel like if we are going to be spending the money to go into these national parks on safaris and spend the money for these luxury lodges, that we should feel a responsibility to give back towards the protection and conservation of these natural spaces. And you're right, we have a long journey to go. But having met a few of the Kenyan Indian conservationists, I am hopeful that even though we're a small little army, I think that there's definitely a zeal to make that change or sort of broaden the perspective of the Kenyan Indian community towards conservation. So I'm with you on that charge for sure. I want to talk a little bit more about your approach to conservation. You started this about 17 years ago since you started Uwasa Lions. How has your approach to change evolved through that time? I think I've changed a lot as a person. Obviously, when I started Uwasa Lions, I didn't really have a clear vision or I didn't know I would be doing what I am doing today. So I think I was just sort of seeing how things would go. I was just exploring. I was learning. I was quite resistant to change initially. Change generally does scare me. But then over time, things change. Your team grows. The threats to lions change and become something that you never thought would ever be a threat. And the landscape changes. The people change. So although I'm someone who's quite averse to change, like I hate change, it scares me. I've had to learn to change and I've had to sort of accept it and I've had to accept this changing landscape and adapt to it and basically do whatever I can to be flexible and live in this changing landscape. So for sure, things have changed a lot. I've changed a lot as a person, as a leader, massively, even in just in the last couple of years. So you just have to learn to be flexible and go with the flow, <laughs> which is quite hard for someone like me, but you figure it out. Yeah. My general perspective towards anyone who has really been committed to get their PhD is somebody who's very determined and disciplined. So I can totally see how <laughs> Some of the unpredictableness of running a nonprofit in the bushes can create some challenges that you didn't expect. So talking about challenges, some may romanticize the idea of living in the Samburu, but conservation is hard, as you mentioned. Could you tell us a little bit more about one or two challenges that stick out to you that you face in conservation and in running your organization? So I guess... Just looking at challenges generally of being in Samburu and living here and just sort of day to day, I think we have a couple. One is definitely climate. We go through severe droughts here and it does really open up your eyes to what's important. You see a lot of people suffering. You see a lot of livestock dying. You see wildlife dying every single day. And that's very, very hard to see, especially when you just don't quite know what to do. Obviously, we'll do what we can by digging holes for wildlife and taking water for people. But the droughts seem to be becoming more and more frequent and more and more extreme. So that's definitely a challenge. And in some places we work in, not everywhere, 
we do face insecurity a lot. So there's areas that are just not safe for our team to go work in. And it's a huge responsibility just keeping everyone safe and not in any danger. So that's definitely, I think, a few of our big challenges of just being here. The challenges of running an organization, one is funding. Our budget has grown so much now from a budget of $3,000 in 2007. We're now at a budget of $800,000 in 2020. So for sure, the budget, trying to keep up with trying to raise enough funds for that is a challenge. Trying to get multi-year support, so not just raising funds for like three months and then you got to raise more and more getting multi-year support, having someone come to you and say, here's money for three years is very rare. But when that does happen, it's incredible because you are able to then plan for the future. You're able to really look ahead and and have a strategy as to what you're going to be doing in two years time or three years time, as opposed to just what am I going to do now for the next six months. So definitely funding is a big challenge for the organization. And then secondly, sustainability. How do you keep this going? How do you keep this going in the long run? How do you build up a team to take over? How do you look at resources and using them wisely? And how do you build ownership? There's all these different things that are constantly in my mind trying to be worked on to ensure that Iwaso Lions continues. And the Lions, no matter what changes and threats they face, we constantly adapt and are flexible and able to address those threats. So yeah, those are just a couple of the challenges I can think of. Well, before we go into the lightning round, I just have one bigger picture question to ask you. And that is, what is your vision for the future of Lions in Kenya? And what do you see Iwaso Lions' role being in that? I think the vision for lions in Kenya, I have hope as long as people living alongside lions are involved in the conservation process. So as long as everyone collaborates, as long as everyone works together, as long as there's none of this, lions only live here and people live outside, as long as everyone looks at lions and people and parks and communities and partners and stakeholders, as long as we look at all this together, then lions definitely have a future in Kenya. We've got a lot to do. We have a lot of challenges, a lot of threats lions keep facing. But I do have hope that as long as people are involved and as long as there's a lot of collaboration and communication, then that's really what I hope to see for lion conservation in the future. Did you have a second question? Well, I guess I wanted to also ask you to share some of like the progress that the organization and your team have made overall in increasing the population of lions in the Samburu. I think for us, our population still stable. We have lost a few lions, but our birth rate's pretty good. It's been stable for about a decade now. 2017 was a bad year, but we have managed to pick up the pieces since then. We're monitoring probably about between 40 to 50 lions, including cubs, which is pretty good for the area. And the team of warriors have stopped the killing of lions over 100 times just in the last three years. We've managed to engage women in conservation. We've managed to engage children in conservation. And I hope that's something else Iwaso Lions can do in the future is bring in children from all over Kenya to come and stay with us and learn about conservation because we have a lion kids camp where this is very much possible now. Children can come, live here five days, get involved in conservation activities and hopefully go home excited about the prospects of conservation. So that's something we definitely want to see more of in the future is bringing children from all over Kenya and partnering with organizations to do so. Yeah. 
it's really a holistic approach by really collaborating with every age group within that community because you ensure that there is a generational passing of that knowledge and that kind of mindset. So I really think that's a great idea. So just to get into the lightning round here, we'll start with the first question, which is what have you read, heard or watched lately that has influenced you the most? I've been reading a lot on leadership stuff. I think mostly over the past year, I've done a lot of leadership training and I've watched videos on what it's like to be a leader and how to be an effective leader. I watched this great video where we were talking about leaders and followers and how a leader will get nowhere unless he or she can convince his followers to believe in his cause and how important those initial followers are. And I don't know if followers is the right word, but that's the word they used in this video. And I really do believe that. I really do accept that that's really very much the case. I think of Jenneria and a few of the guys who started with me right from the beginning. And I was one person who convinced two other people, but it was those two who then convinced a hundred. And I feel like those initial people who believe in your cause are so, so important. So yeah, all this has been in the past year, just learning a lot more about leadership, watching videos, watching TED Talks about leadership. Yeah, I think that's definitely played a role in how I see things. All right. And what's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? (laughs) Counting every single penny. I think I got that from my dad. (laughs) I don't know whether that's the Indian in me or what in me, but definitely I'm very, very careful when it comes to money. And I think that has helped the project a lot. We do not waste money. We're very careful with money. We record everything down to every single 10 cents. And I think that's a personal trait of mine. I'm pretty sure I got from my dad. And I think it's helped Awas Alliance a lot. That's a great trait. What's the best piece of advice you've received? To say no. Don't be afraid to say no. When I think for so many years, I said yes, yes, yes to absolutely everything. And then you risk burnout. But I think it's also just as powerful to be able to say no. And it gives you time. It gives you space. It gives you energy. So I think I'm quite willing to say no to a lot of things these days. And it it helps me a lot. That's a good one. Finally, what is your superpower? I would say lion whisperer, but... (laughs) Gosh, I don't know. I I don't know if I... I don't know. (laughs) I'm not sure I can read lines the way some of the guys do. So I'm not sure it would be Lion Whisperer. That's true. I don't know. Give me some examples of some superpowers and let me see if I fit remotely close to them. Well, somebody said that they have a super sense of smelling, (laughs) of smell rather. One said that they're very kind. Please, I don't know if I'm neither one of those. And I know my hearing is terrible. I hear everything in the opposite direction. Actually, I think what it is, because I did some tests last year when I was doing all this leadership training. And one of the tests was looking at your five strengths. And my top strength that came out was uh, responsibility. Mm. And I really think that is something that drives me. So I feel like I have this real sense of responsibility to get things done. And if I really believe in something, which was another strength of mine, it was called belief. I think between the belief and the sense of responsibility and duty I have for Kenya and Kenya's wildlife, I think that's a real strength that pushes me forward and pushes Iwaso Alliance forward. So maybe that's probably the best way I can end. (laughs) That is a great superpower. Finally, where can we follow you on your journey? You can follow us at Iwaso Alliance. So... 
We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and YouTube. And all our handles are basically at Iwas Alliance. So please do follow us. And we love to hear from people. So definitely stay up to date with our news on our social media. And our, of course, our website, which is iwasoalliance.org. Iwaso is E-W-A-S-O, lions.org. Yeah, I love your website. It's so informative and inspirational. So it's really cool. Is there anything else you would like to add before we go? No, I think that's good. Thanks for this opportunity. I hope this sort of journey in conservation can grow. And I hope the Kenyan Indian community's commitment to conservation can grow. And I hope this is something that might help. I really do. I think we're starting at a good place. So, well, thank you again, Shivani. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Sapna. And look forward to talking to you again soon. Hey all, thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.